So I, um, I was telling Helen this morning that um, when you're preaching, when you get the opportunity to do this, uh, what happens is that the Lord speaks to you in a dramatic way. So I, I, you know, this is for me as much, if not more, than for you guys what I'm going to talk about today. So just need to know that. This has been a real revelation and powerful message to me. Um, but I'm excited to do it. Really, really excited. So in 1940, we're going to go back in history, uh, the Germans have taken over France. And I don't know if you guys know this. I've read uh, a little bit about this, and I continue to learn. They divided France into two places. Did you guys know that? They divided France in two. Here's a picture. There it is. <laughs> Thank you. So the top bit is called the Occupied Zone, and that is where you can see on the coast where they placed all of their uh, pillboxes and barricades to stop an invasion. And it was occupied by the German army. Uh, you can see all of that. And then the bottom bit is called the Free Zone. And at the very top of the bottom bit, you can see a town called Vichy. And it became known as Vichy, France. And what happened was the bottom part of France uh, decided to um, put in with the Germans so they wouldn't be occupied. So they cooperated completely with the German army. Now, I just read about this story, and it blew my mind. So all of the, the lower part of France cooperated except for one town. There's one town right in the middle, about where, the, where it says southern zone, where the Z is, about right there, called La Chambon. And I can't speak French, so if, I, if there's a French major out there telling me that's terrible, sorry. Uh, but this was a Protestant town filled with what they called Huguenots. And they decided that we don't care about what the Germans have to say. What we care about is what God has to say. So they refused to, to, um, to participate with the Germans. And there was a pastor there named Andrew. And this is what Andrew said. He said, we will be loving and forgiving, doing good to our adversaries. That is our duty. So he gathers all the people in the village, almost like it's the pastor of the village, and he's saying this to them. Then he says this, yet we must do this without giving up and without being cowardly. We shall resist... Whenever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel, we shall do so without fear, but with also without pride and without hate. Isn't that powerful? So he's telling the village, this is what we're going to do. So they were given specific orders along the way by the Germans that you have to do these things. They were told that each day that they would salute the flag with a fascist straight arm out, palm down, salute. They refused. They didn't do it. They were told that every teacher in all of their schools had to sign a loyalty card to say that they would be completely loyal to the Germans and to Vichy France and to do whatever they tell them to do, and they refused. They signed no letters. They were told on the one-year anniversary of Vichy France that all the bells in all the villages of all the churches in Vichy, France, would ring on this day as a celebration of their cooperation with the Germans. And all the bells rang in every village except for one, this village. 
Matter of fact, one of the, the ladies in the church said as they were meeting, she said this, she said, the bells do not belong to the marshal. The bells belong to God. So they didn't ring him. Then, here's what happened. Word got out that there was a safe place in Vichy, France. So one day, 1941, a lady showed up at Pastor Andrew's door, a Jewish lady, who said, I heard that this might be a safe place to go. And he said, it is. Please come. And word got out. As Jews were being rounded up in the north, word got out that La Chabon was the place to go. They had a little school of 18 children in the whole school. By 1942, that had ballooned to 350. And it didn't take a genius to figure out they weren't from that village. They were coming from other places. They heard this was a safe place, and people began to flock to this village for safety. And then from there, they would smuggle them out to Switzerland to freedom. So they heard about it, and they decided they were going to do something about it. So 1942, they send the minister, the Vichy minister, let's see, uh, for uh, uh, youth affairs. He's being sent to this village because he wants to take this village and the young people in this village, and he wants to start camps like the Nazis have started in Germany. And he wants to manipulate their minds and convince them of the Germans being right. So he demands a banquet. When he's arriving, there's to be a banquet. He demands that they all meet in the stadium, the entire village. Everyone there is to meet in the stadium, and he is going to address them. So he arrives, 1942, in the village. They put on a banquet. The food is terrible, on purpose. Pastor Andrew's daughter is serving and accidentally spills soup down the back of the minister. Accidentally. I love that. Then they go to the stadium. And they have nothing planned. The people are milling about. And the minister gets up to speak to everyone. And this is powerful, folks. This is amazing. Three weeks before this, they have rounded up hundreds of Jews in Paris. And they have torn moms and dads apart from their kids. And they've taken them away to camps. And they've heard about this. So the teenagers... The teenagers in this town write a letter. And they walk up to the minister in the middle of the stadium in front of everybody. And they read this letter to the minister with all of his guards surrounding the stadium. And this is what they say. You ready? These are 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. We have learned of the frightening scenes which have taken place three weeks ago in Paris where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris to hold them. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children were torn from their mothers who went, underwent the same fate as their husbands. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between the Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades 
whose only fault is to be born into another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported, or even examined, they will disobey the order received. We will, do, we will try to hide them as best as we can. And they finish with this. We have Jews, and you're not getting them. I mean, doesn't that make you want to stand up and go, yes! And they're doing this while they're surrounded in a stadium by Vichy troops ready to shoot them, ready to put them in prison, ready to send them all to concentration camps. How? How do they do this? How are they this bold? Well, see, what maybe the Germans didn't know or even the Vichy knew was that these were Huguenots. They have been persecuted and beaten and killed for their faith for many years. Protestants living in a major Catholic country. Protestants who stand up for what they believe in and refuse to compromise. Protestants who say, we have unwavering faith in the Lord, and whatever you threaten us with, we are not afraid to die. Today, we're talking about a verse from Philippians chapter 1 that says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And these people lived it. They knew it. They breathed it. It was real to them. Let's go back. We've been talking about Philippians chapter 1. Fantastic. Love it. So good. Um, and we've gotten to verse 12, right? Verse 12-ish. Close enough. Paul, you guys know this, right? Paul started this church. You can read the whole account of him starting the church in Philippi in, in Acts. I think it's 16. And it's amazing how he meets Lydia. And her whole family comes to faith. And she's having a Bible study down by a river. And then he meets and, and saves this girl who's, who's possessed by demons. And then he's uh, tortured and beaten and mocked by this jailer who then comes to faith because they don't escape. And his whole family comes to faith. These are people that Paul himself has led to Christ. And he loves them. Matter of fact, in the first few verses, he says, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. I love you. I mean, these are powerful words. This is the book of joy, right? This is what we talk about. Then he goes on to say this in verse 12, and I love it. He says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in jail. What he's talking about is he is in prison. And he says this, so that it has become known, the gospel, throughout the entire imperial guard. Everybody knows about Jesus because I'm in prison. How cool is that, right? I'm thinking, if I'm in prison, does everybody know about Jesus, or they just know that I'm hungry and tired and I just want to go? I don't know. But Paul's there, and he's like, wherever you put me, by the way, doesn't matter where you put me, where the Lord puts me, everybody's going to know about Jesus. By the time I leave, they're all going to know how amazing Jesus is. He says, the whole guard and everybody else, he's including anybody that's involved in this, they all know about Jesus. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Think about that for a second. He's in prison, and his perspective is, this is great. I'm in prison, and this is amazing. This is exactly what God wants. If he didn't want this, I wouldn't be in prison. And so the whole guard has heard about Jesus. And all these other people have heard about Jesus. And all these other people who were scared to share their faith, they're now more bold to share their faith. They're going, hey, if Paul can do it, we can do it. Let's go. That's his perspective, right? He's like, oh, he's like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. And then he goes on. And I love this. This leads us to the verse that we want to land on for a minute. He says, I will rejoice. And he says that word over and over again in Philippians. You will hear it over and over. I will rejoice. I will be thankful. I will shout out praise to God. How amazing he is. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. And he's not talking about being delivered from prison. That's not what he's talking about. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live or die. What he's saying here is, whatever happens, whether I ever leave this prison, or I'm here, or my head gets chopped off, that I know that God is going to use it to reach more people for Christ. And I want to celebrate that. Because I have full confidence that God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's put me exactly where he wants me to be. And my role in that isn't to figure out where I'm supposed to be. My role is just to honor him and make him look good and tell everybody I possibly can about him. That's what I do. That's his perspective. And then he says the verse that we all know so well, Philippians 1.21, that if you haven't memorized, you'll have it memorized by the time we leave here today. It just simply says this, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you have that perspective, man, God can, give, God can use you to do anything. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So I began, as I was preparing this and praying, what does that mean? We even talked about it as a family. What does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? What does that look like? And I just have three thoughts for us today that I'm hoping will make it, give it handles, as people say, make it practical. The first thought is this, to live as Christ, that we have unwavering conviction that we belong to Jesus. We belong to him, right? We've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says we have been bought with a price. He owns us. We are his. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We are new in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. I have been bought with a price. I belong to to Jesus. I am his, and he can do whatever he wants with me, anytime he wants to do it. There's this great picture I found on the internet. We're going to put it up just a second. Wait, John, uh, of this footballer, Kaka, Brazilian footballer. Have you guys seen this before? He won the World Cup in 2002 with Brazil. He went back and played again. He was world famous, 
And one day, in front of millions of people watching on TV and all of the fans, he pulls his top off in front of everybody, and he gets down on his knees, and this is what it looks like. And that's what he's wearing in front of the whole world to see. I belong to Jesus. Unashamed, unwavering conviction that whatever else happens on the planet Earth, I belong to Jesus. I am his. He can send me wherever he wants to send me. He can take me through anything he wants to take me through because I trust him. And my life isn't my own anymore. It's his. Man, don't you think that's what these guys in La Chabon got? That they belonged to Jesus? They had unwavering conviction. They're told to, to salute, said no. They're told to sign loyalty cards, no. They're told to ring the bells, no, we are not doing that. We belong to Jesus. And you can do with us what you want. We go where he wants us to go. We do what he wants us to do. They have unwavering conviction. The second thing that I think goes along with that, if you have unwavering conviction, then you can go into the fact that to die is gain. To die is gain means that this life is temporary. We're here for a little while, but we're not here for very long. It's not about building up stuff, people. It's not about getting the right job, having enough money, having the cool car, all the things that the world tells you is what's important. You know, at the end of November, we're going to have Thanksgiving in America, and then after that is Black Friday. Black Friday is now celebrated around the world, and people don't even know why. There's like, I know they do something in America on the Friday. It's like, yeah, they send everybody shopping. Go buy all your stuff. It's Black Friday. It's how the stores get out of debt, by the way. They're all in debt until Black Friday. Then it's like, oh, now we're not in debt anymore. Because we are like, oh, I guess I've got to buy some stuff to be happy. Let's go buy it. No. The word I want you to think about is this, uncommon generosity. When your life is not about here, but it's about there. When that is gain, when that's better, when that's what we're looking forward to, then you can give away stuff. You can be generous. I mean, I want you to imagine, these guys are in a village that probably would have had very little food. They probably were going, you know, they were keeping food from them to keep them for the troops. So just like in the UK, they were rationing meat, eggs, everything else in the world. And yet they were bringing in Jews by the hundreds and housing them and feeding them and teaching them. And when people heard about their generosity, they flocked. To live as Christ and to die as gain means you have this picture of that it's not about my, me and it's not about my stuff. So I can be and should be and will be as generous as I possibly can. I will say this, and I love that you guys are going to Cambodia. If, by the way, if you've never been on a missions trip, you should go. You should go to Cambodia or somewhere. It will change your perspective on what we have here. I'll never forget, my first missions trip uh, out of the U.S. was to Romania, 1993. And the wall had just fallen a couple years before. Ceausescu was gone, and Christians for the first time were, were, were allowed to actually worship in their churches. But I went to visit this church in Romania that still had its guard dog there from the days of the communist that would bark it, when they would meet in secret to let them know you got to scatter before they arrest you. This church had been demolished twice by Ceausescu. 
And they had lived on rations for years, and they had almost nothing. And I go to visit them, right? And, and a family invites me over for dinner. And I'll never forget, I go to dinner in this tiny little apartment in Romania, and, and, and sitting on this table, they've, they've prepared a beautiful meal, and sitting in the middle of it is a big two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola. And I'm like, sweet, we're having Coke. I hadn't seen a Coke in a while. And no one else drank Coke but me. And what I didn't realize is it cost them a week's wages to buy that Coke. Uncommon generosity. That's what it looks like. Uncommon generosity. When you have unwavering conviction that you belong to Jesus and he can do whatever he wants, that leads to uncommon generosity. That I want to give back how good God has been to me and I will give to whoever needs something. I mean, that's powerful. I couldn't believe it. When, I, when no one else was drinking it, I'll just, I didn't even want to drink it after that, and that would have been incredibly rude of me, by the way. So I had to drink the whole thing. <laughs> and I did. I drank the whole thing. And I didn't sleep for two days. And it was awesome. Those guys were my heroes, by the way. Heroes. Incredible. And finally, the third one is this. If you, if to live is Christ, flip that around, that Christ is life. These guys in this village were doing everything they could. They were putting their life on the line to save as many Jews as they could. And that's what it means to live as Christ, is that we put our lives on the line to save as many Jews as we can, that we do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. We are fools for Christ so that maybe one more person can enter the kingdom, one more young person or next-door neighbor or friend at work can find Jesus because Christ is life. And I promise you, and I've said this before, every single person that you encounter rich or poor, young or old, are looking for Jesus. They just don't know it. And we have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus with our lives, with the way we're generous, with the way that we share grace with the world. There's... I have a hard time going online and reading about the states right now. I'm actually really glad not to be there. It's so divisive. Social media has not been a help, by the way. You read online and it's just Twitter is just an argument, right? It's just, I'm going to tweet something horrible and see what kind of reaction I get. And then it's just reaction and, yeah, you're, oh, I hate you too. And we, as Christians, by the way, we have to be above that. I promise you that, that the Lord knows what's going on, and we have to be the grace sharers and the peacemakers. We need to eliminate the idea of ever getting online and starting an argument ever. If you want to have a conversation with somebody, you do it 
face to face. The world has lost the art of face to face. But this is how we are to do it, men and women, face to face. In relationship, building it, showing grace, loving people with uncommon grace. That's how it works. It doesn't work by slamming people online or being unforgiving or unwilling. That is not going to pull people to Jesus ever. And that is not what we do. To live is Christ, which means I represent Christ everywhere I go. With the words that I say, the attitude that I bring, the generosity, the grace, the love. I represent him. And it's how I treat other people that they get a picture of what Jesus is like and what God's like. The other day, um, Maddie, uh, my daughter Maddie's 14, and she has a friend named Naya. And Naya and Maddie and her friends were talking at school the other day, and Naya said, you know what's really wrong with the world today? Maddie's like, what? She said, religion. That's the biggest problem in the whole world. If we could just get rid of religion. And then she looked at Maddie. She's like, sorry, Maddie. How do you think Maddie felt? Sitting there in front of all of her friends who don't know Christ, feeling a little sheepish, a little attacked, a little embarrassed, thinking, is it crazy that I believe this? That none of my friends believe this? Is religion truly the greatest evil in the world? And so she came home and I heard that. I said, Maddie, she's right. Religion isn't great. But relationship with Jesus is amazing. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. And you got to remember that. And we're not perfect. We don't get it right all the time. But Jesus is perfect. And he gets it right every time. And he's the one we follow. But we're representing him. So when we walk out these doors, we have to understand that when people try to figure out what God is like or Jesus is like, they're looking at you and me to figure that out. We are ambassadors for Christ everywhere we go. Every word that comes out of our mouth, our attitude, reflects Christ. And the challenge for me as I thought about this is, do I go around when I'm in Tesco and I'm checking out, am I representing Christ very well? Or when I'm stuck in a traffic jam, ooh, and everybody's trying to zip around everybody, am I representing Christ very well? Or with my checkbook? Yeah, we still have a checkbook. Do I represent Christ well? Am I being generous with my words and my stuff? in my heart. It's powerful, isn't it? It's challenging. And you start thinking about it, you're like, to live as Christ, does that mean I don't get to watch any of my favorite movies anymore? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, you can watch movies, but there are certain movies you probably shouldn't watch ever again. Certain TV shows that you would think, would Jesus sit here and watch this with me? Would he feel great about watching this? And if the answer is no, then you know as well as I do, you should stop watching it. Because it's not honoring to Christ. And it isn't building you up or anybody else up around you to say, hey, I want to be more like Jesus. So cut it out. And I'm talking to myself, by the way. Right? This is us. So, 
How do we make this practical? I've said a bunch of things. Here's my thought that I got. Then I'm done. I saw Ant look at his watch, so I'm almost done. It's all good. I saw it. I was like, you slid it. And you're like, oh, it's okay. It was, it's perfect. It's perfect. He told me to be done by noon. I'm getting done at 1130, so we're good. Just kidding. If you have a family with kids, here's what I would love for you to do. Sometime this week, get together as a family and go, what does it look like for us to live as Christ and to die as gain? What does that look like for us? Is there anything we need to do different as a family? Is there anything we need to start doing or stop doing? Is there an attitude we need to work on? Talk about it as a family. We're going to do this with our family. We've already started doing it. We're going to keep doing it. What if you don't have kids, but you have a spouse? Talk together. What if you're in a small group or a home group? Talk about it in your home group. Bring it up. Go, all right, let's talk about this. And you're not going to get it all figured out in one time, one hour, one meeting, but dwell on it. Meditate on this. Chew on this as part of your devotional life. What does it look like for me to live as Christ, that I belong to Jesus? What does that look like for me today and tomorrow and the next day? Find a group of people, a spouse, a friend. If you, have, you guys are in small groups in the CU, talk about it in your small groups. What does it look like for us in the context of the University of Hertfordshire and all the people up here? What does it look like for us to live as Christ and to die as gain? What does that look like? And then do it. I don't have to tell you what to do. The Holy Spirit will do that. Isn't that good? But I can tell you this. And this is why I love we're going through Philippians, that this is what we want to do as a church. And this is what we are doing as a church. We want to live as Christ. We might get some Forest Town t-shirts made that we're going to give out and say, I belong to Jesus. I don't know. That's just an idea, and I'm throwing it out there. You know, we're going to start doing the bakery, and we're just going to put, I belong to Jesus on all the bread. Right, George? That's what we're going to do. <laughs> I don't know. I'm throwing out ideas, people. But whatever it looks like, wouldn't it be great if we didn't need a t-shirt? That people just knew it? Because of the way we acted and the way we talked and the way we treated them? I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I want that to be true every day of my life. That I belong to him. Not to my phone. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for today and for this passage and this reminder that we belong to you and we want to belong to you and we want to live life like we belong to you. Because who else would we want to belong to? Not the world. You are the one that has the words of eternal life. You are the one who knows our future. You are the one who's given your life for us. You are the one who loves us and yearns for us deeply. We love you back. We give today to you and we pray that we could live life knowing that we belong to Jesus like Christ. Because to live is Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen.